Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by writer Hilton Ailes. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2017 for his work at The New Yorker, where he's been on staff since 1994. In his three decades at the magazine, he's written seminal profiles of Toni Morrison, Maggie Nelson, and the late Andre Leon Talley. Since 2012, he's been the magazine's lead theater critic. When he's not writing for The New Yorker, he's writing for himself. He's authored a handful of books, including The Women, White Girls, and his latest, My Pinup, an exploration of desire, sexuality, race, and prince. He does all that in less than 50 pages in this new novella. And it's fairly characteristic of Hilton's work, which is marked by a kind of expansiveness, entwining memoir with literary criticism. Hilton has taken these qualities, usually reserved for the page, and recently brought them to the Hammer Museum, where he's organized a new exhibition titled Joan Didion, What She Means. It's a stirring portrait of the late author, featuring more than 200 works of painting, photography, sculpture, video, and footage from a number of films for which Didion authored screenplays. If you're in Los Angeles, the exhibition is open for one more week at the Hammer Museum. After that, the show will move to the Perez Art Museum in Miami, 
on July 13th. To learn more, be sure to visit hammer.ucla.edu. That's hammer.ucla.edu. For today, Hilton and I, of course, unpack these new projects around Didion and Prince, but we also discuss his upbringing in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where he grew up with his mother in the early 70s and quickly found writing. In fact, this episode is really the makings of Hilton Owls and all the people that have shaped and formed the writer we know today. I hope you enjoy this talk as much as we did. Do you want to? Are you too low? No, I'm fine. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I feel higher than you, and I don't like that. It's okay. Okay, I'm happy. You are. Okay. Yeah. Then if you're, if you're happy, I'm happy. Good. Um, let's jump in, Hilton. It's uh, a pleasure to have you here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, this is a long time in coming. We've been planning since COVID, right? It's almost three years in the making. I know. It better be good. I think it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> Things be pretty, I, I I said it was a pleasure to have you here, but I actually heard from my producers that. This is actually not your first time here. You came here yesterday. Yes. A day before the taping. Yes. Were you just like excited to see me? What was, was going on? Well, I was beside myself on that level. But <laughs> what happens generally is if I'm afraid of missing something that I've committed to, I will show up a day early or an hour late because I think the time is different or... I won't be there. It's sort of like a dream, actually, you know, in those dreams where you can't catch up. And so I arrived yesterday, and your adorable person, I called her and— We, we call him a producer. Producer. I called her, and she said, uh, it's tomorrow. She said that you said, oh, my God, this always happens. Yes. What had happened was that in the car, I was going to a gallery— and then I realized suddenly that I had to be with you, and it turned out not to be true. So I went to the gallery and had my evening. So I'm happy to be here. You know, you took the circuitous path. Yes, but it was the righteous one. And with that, I think we can properly begin. <laughs> okay. Why don't we start with this new two-part memoir, My Pinup, A Pian to Prince, which partly details your time with Prince mm -hmm. on tour yes, back in 2004. When it comes to writing profiles, you've often looked to the words of photographer Diane Arbus for instruction. Yes. Who said, I work from awkwardness. By that, I mean I don't like to arrange things. If I stand in front of something, instead of arranging it, I arrange myself. Yes. Isn't that brilliant? I, it's just like everything she did. Yeah. How did you go about arranging yourself in front of someone like Prince? You have to allow whatever is happening to happen. So years ago, the jazz great Cecil Taylor was doing a recording in San Francisco. One of the musicians came with his child, and the child was running around and making a little noise, and um, the musician was upset, and Cecil said, don't stop him, it's what's happening. And I think that what Arbus meant is you walk into the situation not as a self, but as a person who is going to give yourself over to the situation and to the subject. And so by giving myself over to the subject, that means that I listen constructively, 
I had a brilliant mother who was a constructive listener. So you walk into the situation listening and watching, and you don't interrupt the emotional panorama of what's happening. You don't interrupt it with the I. You sort of take on the story that the person is telling you. And so you morph with the storyteller. You are listening and you are engaged on a level where your eye disappears and you become part of their consciousness. So inside Prince's dressing room... I thought you were going to say inside Prince. That was a dream, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all had that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but once you're inside, what was the story he was trying to tell you? I think that one of the things that was so incredible for me to observe was how much he desired Black male approval. So that when Maceo came in or when Larry Johnson, me, other people, I could tell that he really wanted our approval. And it was so touching to me because you never expect someone who is mega famous or mega watt personalities, etc., to really need other people. And it was such an incredibly moving instance of how much he did need other people that he was, you know, looking collectively or individually for a sort of father figure, I think. And that was really what was completely astonishing. What's fascinating is the kind of baggage you brought to that dressing room. Mm -hmm. Because by 2004, it seems like your relationship to him and his work had changed by the passage of time. Yes. I had sort of stuck with him, but I was less enthralled by the sort of Purple Rain era stuff. And I was becoming interested again in the things that he was putting out as a producer, like Black Album. But, you know, that's the sort of beauty and injury of any kind of pop person, which is that they go in and out of favor according to where your life is. It's a kind of weird martyrdom, right, that they exist and don't exist with you. I guess the distinction I'm trying to make or I'm I'm fascinated by Mm -hmm. is in thinking about that Arbus quote, your ability to observe him fully while kind of leaving that baggage at the door. Were you able to do that? Absolutely, because he was so sweet. I mean, one of the things that was so moving about his person, I think, was his defenselessness, but also his being a kind of, how would I put it? He knew where his feet were on the ground, and at the same time, he was, I think, available to people. If they came to him and he intuited that he could trust you, it was a delight to be with him. We're talking about the way you observe people. Uh Uh-huh. But I love this line that you have around the late Joan Didion, in which you said, in order to understand the difference in others, you first have to understand it within yourself. Yes. And I wondered if you first understood that difference inside yourself around 1968. By then, you're eight years old in Brownsville, Brooklyn, with the family, as you write, of West Indian women who raised their children in what social workers used to call socio-isolation. And within that isolation, you began at age eight to write. In doing so, was that your earliest instance of understanding that difference within yourself? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Well, I think that when something is natural to you, it doesn't occur to you that it's a different thing. It's natural to you. So, And also, I was very fortunate in that I had a mother 
who was very interested in what I was doing. She loved art and artists. And I would show her my work. I would show her my story. She was my first editor. Didn't she write her comments at the the top of the page? She would say, excellent, love mommy, or very good, mommy. Um, Very generous editor. Yeah. (laughs) As as time went on, she would make sort of uh, trenchant um, uh, (laughs) editorial suggestions. But, you know, it takes one person, right, to give you that enthusiasm, but also to make you feel that it's not separate from your primary person, which is what she was. I just never felt judged by her. Even as I sort of tested the boundaries of what was acceptable with my father. How would you do that? Uh, costume parties where he was not approving of a particular costume or things that she would make me to wear to school that were very non-gender. What were these based. costumes? Uh, I went once as a bearded lady. I went once as Pearl <laughs> Bailey. Like, you know, sort of the expression of my gay self was not something that she even really remarked upon. She just kind of did it. And I love her to bits for it still, that there was no language and there was permission. These are moments that I will cherish to the grave because they make you, they make you understand that you're doing something that's acceptable to someone you love, you know? Did you find it acceptable to yourself? Did you have any complications around that? Later, I think when when you start to feel sexual, you don't know how to do that because you're in a very, very, very tiny minority at that, or self-admitted minority. So that was when it sort of started to change and become more difficult and complex, for sure. You said that you were pushing the limits of your father's patient or or something or another. I uh, I think it would be fairer to say that I was pushing the limits of his capability. Of his imagination. Yeah, that his, he wasn't really capable of love, really, on that level. How do you mean? My father had a, I would say, a, a real Oedipal relationship to his sons, me and my brother, and he would rather not have other boys exist around him. He claimed a lot of attention, and I think he was exceedingly uncomfortable around other men. Including his sons? First and foremost. <laughs> and so they were on the most wanted. Yeah, list. exactly. Um, we won it in fifty states, and uh, I didn't grow up really with a lot of taboos, but the ones that I had were pretty specific and large. It was around this time, maybe just a year before, where in September of 1967, mm-hmm. the neighborhood that you're in catches wind of a 14-year-old black teenager named Richard Ross, mm-hmm. who had been killed by a detective named John Ratley, and. I have to say, with, with the just painful, infuriating footage that has come out this past week. Yes, which I refuse to look at again. I just couldn't look at it once more. Do you want to describe it to me or do you want to let me? No, I, I don't. Okay, good. <clears throat> I, no, I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. That's, I, I had, that's I a had, human response. I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. But in watching it, I couldn't help but think of uh, this passage that you wrote around the 1967 incident that perhaps you would um, be open to reading. Sure. This is from Homecoming, which was originally published in The New Yorker back in 2020. Marches, protests, and the like were, we knew, a prelude to the racially motivated violence that had already cropped up in nearby Newark and other places such as Detroit. For sure, Brownsville would get more messed up if the cops were involved. 
That was how demonstrations became riots. I remember that night, or was it late afternoon, our mother walking us swiftly into the house and shutting all the doors and windows. Inside, it was lights out. The air was close. We could hear our hearts beating. Peeking from behind one of the living room curtains, I watched as the protesters started flinging bottles and stones at the cops, and our real world turned into a movie, a horror film in which everything we'd built together, home, hope, the illusion of citizenship, was torn to the ground. Black people, mostly men, were roaming the streets, periodically smashing car windows or overturning ash cans and torching rubbish. They were claiming what they felt to be a kind of freedom. As refugees, we knew that none of it belonged to us, not that shop, not that newly built pigeon coop. Even as we knew that it did belong to us, emotionally speaking, it was all part of our community. Still, why not trash a universe that has trashed you? I haven't read that in a long time. It's pretty good. I think you should stick with it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You know, hearing you read that piece, what's most disconcerting is that you're describing events from 56 years ago. Mm. And yet, give or take a few nouns, you could be writing about Tyree Nichols Mm -hmm. in 2023. Mm -hmm. Which is not to say that these stories are the same, because these lives, that of Ross and Nichols, must be considered one by one. But after processing each individually, the pattern the circularity of history, it, it's unnerving. And also, um, I was sitting here trying to think of a word that would be okay, circularity for sure, and also um, repetition, right? Political and historical repetition that keeps being the same thing, even though each instance of horror is each instance of horror. Cumulatively, it feels like a very long time. And the response to it, seems to follow in lockstep again and again, that we can't break the circle. Yeah, exactly. I remember around the time of the um, Black Lives Matter movement, all of a sudden on TV there would be like black films and somebody's going to make some money off of it always. You know, dissension pays on some level. In that same piece you wrote, we all hurt, but some of us want to continue to be paid. Yeah, Three years later, do you feel we've changed at all as a culture? Do we, do we feel we're making the same mistake again? I think it's a person-by-person uh, person basis. I, you know, I'm happy to meet you. That gives me hope. I can't say collectively what we are anymore. You used to be able to? I used to be able to generalize more freely and say, you know, the human or the humane impulse or the humane aspect of something. And I don't feel that I can say that with any great degree of certainty anymore. I, I would probably reserve it for a uh, a much more um, person-by-person basis. It's interesting you say that because the, the part of that passage you read, the thing that really struck with me beyond the larger cultural implications, is what is at the center of it, which is discussing community, which your family had been searching for since leaving Barbados Mm -hmm. for America. But as the man of the house, albeit as a young boy at that time, Mm -hmm. you often wrestled with this desire to protect. To protect my mother and my little brother and my sister. They were everything to me. And so I still have that impulse um, very strongly that when I 
perceive that someone is that whom I love is an underdog or going to be harmed in some way, I, it's it's a visceral response to vulnerability. Your mother, for context, was a member of the National Council of Negro Women and had attended the March on Washington. Yes. You said that she always maintained hope. And here's a quote. Ma always had hope, but she knew that it helped change the world, her black world. But I had no clear examples growing up of what might make a difference in mine. Guns, death, poetry. Would any of it dismantle the economic discrepancies, for instance, that defined our de facto underclass, that kept us scavenging for a lifeline, even if it was just a pair of sneakers snatched through a pane mm. of broken glass. Mm. And I wondered if if writing and then reading was that lifeline for you. Absolutely. My mother was a reader. She would make our dinner and lock herself in the bathroom and read <laughs> and eat her dinner until, you know, it was time for them to go to sleep. I was inspired by her example, but my father was also a reader. You know, as Elizabeth Hardwick says, it's really... Reading is companionable, it's cheap, it can go in your pocket. You know, it was always something that I really loved to do in terms of what was available to me. You know, you find the things that are nourishing and consistent when you're a kid. You just really want something to be consistent. And reading and my imagination were fantastic companions. Well, I think it's only fitting then that we go to a piece that was nourishing for you. An example of that lifeline, which you read as a young man, comes in the form of a one-act play from 1976 called A Movie Star Has to Be in Black and White. Oh, yes. Written by the great Adrian Kennedy. This is a play that Adrian Kennedy wrote, and it starred Gloria Foster, the great Gloria Foster. You'll remember her as the, I've never seen the movies, but the Matrix, the first Matrix, um, things of ladies making cookies and smoking. You, you haven't seen the Matrix? Mm-mm. I know. I mean, you're not missing that much. Okay, but... I'll, I'll, I'll try. I, I, I like the lady who's. In, <laughs> I like the lady who's in it too. Uh, <laughs> Carrie Moss. Yes, she's beautiful. I like that. I'll try to watch The Matrix. Okay, like it's a new dish or something. I know. It's... And in any case, she wrote this piece, and it was performed at the Public Theater with her and a, a wonderful woman. Both of them are dead now, but uh, Robbie McCauley was a great dancer, actress, and uh, Adrian Kennedy's work is about the convergence of fantasy and reality, the fantasy of movie stars, movie life, movie romance, and the reality of blackness, particularly for female characters. And often in her early plays, there's a lot to be said about where does that reality and that fantasy meet for the, her characters. So this is a wonderful, deeply brilliant play that I had adopted actually for the screen once and it's called The Movie Star Has to Star in Black and White. Um, Betty Davis is one of the primary characters and she's played by a black woman. Betty Davis to Paul, June 1955. When I have the baby, I wonder, will I turn into a river of blood and die? My mother almost died when I was born. I've always felt sad that I couldn't have been an angel of mercy to my father and mother and saved them from their torment. I used to hope when I was a little girl that one day I would rise above them an angel with glowing wings and cover them with peace, but I failed. When I came among them, it seems to me I did not bring them peace, 
but made them more disconsolate. The crosses they bore always made me sad. That one reality I wanted never came true, to be their angel of mercy, to unite them. I keep remembering the time my mother threatened to kill my father with the shotgun. I keep remembering my father's going away to marry a girl who talked to willow trees. It's Adrian really speaking through this character about her family, and it's the projection of her soul and sensibility through Betty Davis that is so remarkable, aside from the writing which itself, which is very beautiful. Now, hearing you read that just now, I couldn't help but think of where you saw yourself in that passage, especially the line, I've always felt sad that I couldn't have been an angel of mercy to my father and mother mm-hmm. and save them from their torment. That's a very good question, Dr. Freud. I think that it would be a wish that I had for my mother, that I would want to make her life better for her. I think it's a driving force in my life. And I think that the other thing that I identify with in the piece, the, what I just read, is the poetry of it. And how do you make language move and lyrical and speak? Dr. Freud says, uh, <laughs> the session's up. We're good. Oh, good. <laughs> Dr. Lacan. It's 15 minutes. Yeah, that's great. As that teenager in the late 70s, mm-hmm. hanging out with the alt crowd in downtown Manhattan, and then as a young man at Columbia University, how instructive was both the writing of Adrian Kennedy, and then perhaps more specifically, her ability to take artifacts from the culture, like Betty Davis, and make it her own? Well, I didn't know her work until I was working at the Village Voice, and there was a uh, a galley of her memoir, People Who Led to My Plays. And I remember picking it up and just sitting there and reading it straight through. Structurally, it was such a liberating book for me because she used photographs and she used memory in the proper way, which was that it wasn't necessarily linear and it wasn't something that she could be certain of, but was certain about the feeling of something. So that's how I started reading her. And then I found a book of her plays that came out around the same time. And I was just blown away by the intimacy and emotionally everything that she wrote made sense to me. The power she had to not let the world validate her first. Were you inspired by that? Absolutely. I'm very inspired by that. Free voices. They not only bolster you, but they give you the encouragement that's required to be yourself, too in ways that, you know, were not necessarily um, familiar before. Liberating, ultimately. This seems tied to this sort of ongoing conversation about seeing yourself in the work. Would you seem to reject some of that notion, that you need to explicitly see yourself? Exactly. I I don't think it has to be you all the time. I think that one of the wonderful parts of being involved with language is that it's liberating and that you can be anything that you want to be that you're describing. You're testing the limits of your own thinking all the time, and that's very important. I guess I'm trying to get this point down because, like Kennedy, you did not wait for the world to validate. You found metaphors in work that you love to describe yourself to you. Mm -hmm. And then you used what you read to move the conversation forward and talk about your own experience. Yes. And one source of inspiration, both back then and now, 
is in the work of the late Joan Didion. Oh, yes. And I thought we could talk about her in this new exhibition you curated at the Hammer Museum called What She Means. Now, back in 2006, you interviewed Didion for the Paris Review in which she explains that, and I quote, although a novel takes place in the larger world, there's always some drive in it that is entirely personal, even if you don't know it while you're doing it. Mm. Now that this exhibition is for everyone to see, I'm curious, what was that drive for you as you set about creating what she means? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I think that one of the real sort of salient points for me to make the show was to show a life evolving and that the life was so much about the development of a character, right? So there's this very smart person from Sacramento who goes to college and she starts to write or feel that it's all been said before, but she's continuing. This is Didion. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to New York and she's working for Vogue and she's having a pretty bourgeois. She's doing everything that's expected of her. And then she stops doing everything that's expected of her as she becomes a more serious writer and then moves back to Los Angeles during a time of great social upheaval. And I think it was that moment in her life that she became Joan Didion because she allowed for the fracture to be part of the story. Um, She was no longer holding it together and writing the perfectly constructed novel like Run River, her first book. She understood that her voice and her feelings and her thought and her ethos was really kind of in sync with the times that she was living in. And I think she had such an incredible facility to not only chart the times that she was involved with, but to understand that her body was not separate from this fracture, her thinking, everything that she had been raised to think and presuppose as a kind of bourgeois girl had to be um, jettisoned in order for her to be alive in the moment of her life, in this life. Didion, more than just about any writer from the 20th century, is returned to again and again, certainly one of the most. Mm -hmm. I wondered, why do you think that is? Because of the honesty of the voice. I think that when you, as she would say, put cards on the table, I'm just paraphrasing, but you're risking the humiliation of seeing your name in print is what she wrote. But I would say it's the humiliation of seeing yourself. And when you risk that, you take your chances, right? You're not the kind of person who's going to keep your cards close to the chest. It's an act of freedom as much as anything else is to tell people who you are. They can't tell you, you've told them. Mm. It's a form of control too. But I think she was very interested in how What did this vulnerability mean? What did this life mean without that self-exposure? She was someone that came of age as a Goldwater Republican. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to know that that definition is uh, very different now than what it was then. Then it was Republicans meant, you know, limited government interference in the life of citizens. That's really what it meant. And yes, there was conservatism, but there was also that aspect of it. And the Republicans have carried that tradition proudly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Maybe my theory then is, as someone who came from this Republican household in Sacramento, she had these very firm 
ideas and understandings of, of the world that were that were passed down to her yes. by her parents. Yes. And then life does what it does. Yes. And she has this kind of lifelong, ongoing public reckoning with herself and the world around her. Yes. And perhaps in those increasingly fractured times, people ran to it. I think they also found the necessity of her voice, right? I think that what she was brilliant at was articulating destabilization, how you become one thing based on assumed notions of the past. And this destabilization is a remarkable thing to live through. How do we live through it with language? Or how do we make language to talk about this experience? It's impossible to pick a single passage. I know. She's so great. That captures all her abilities and and, and interests. Mm -hmm. But I know this one piece, which comes at the beginning of her novel, A Book of Common Prayer, means a whole lot to you. Yeah, it does. Happy to read it. Chapter one, I will be her witness. That would translate sere su testigo and will not appear in your traveler's phrase book because it is not a useful phrase for the prudent traveler. Here's what happened. She left one man. She left a second man. She traveled again with the first. She let him die alone. She lost one child to, quote-unquote, history, and another to, quote-unquote, complications. I offer in each instance the evaluation of others. She imagined herself capable of shedding that baggage and came to Boca Grande, a tourist, una turista. So she said. In fact, she came here less as a tourist than a sojourner, but she did not make that distinction. She made not enough distinctions. She dreamed her life. She died hopeful. In summary, so you know the story. Of course, the story had extenuating circumstances, weather, cracked sidewalks, and paragorina, but only for the living. I think that's such a remarkable piece of writing, and it says so much about how life is for those of us who are reading the book that she's writing, you know? It's a beautiful piece. It's also a piece about self-delusion and and how this country produces Mm -hmm. dreamers. And incidentally, Didion, both on the page and in your time with her, seemed to make a dreamer out of you. And yet the greater irony is that as inspiring as she was, I imagine you had to, like all writers, unlearn her voice Mm -hmm. in order to find your own. Yes. I don't think I was technically influenced by her, but I was certainly influenced by her interest in writing about women in fiction. Well, she, I mean, a lot of people don't read her later stuff, which is unfortunate, but if you look at novels like Last, The Last Thing He Wanted, uh, Democracy, these are all kind of romances about women who don't fit, who are away or outside of the status quo, despite money or fame or whatever. And I think that one of the things that I love about her writing is this search for continuity, even though she knows it doesn't exist, in particularly in the, in the fiction. And her essays, of course, I loved finding out that James Baldwin was one of her favorite writers, and they do stand side by side on the bookcase for me because of not only their voices, which are extraordinary, but their ability to take 
the political and to make it not only just personal, but the narrative. After the break, more from writer Hilton Els. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. At what point, maybe it was becoming a staff writer at The Village Voice or a staffer at The New Yorker in 94, at what point did you feel like you found your voice? I think it was in 1990 and I was 30 and I wrote an essay that I read. Uh, It was like a tiny conference and I think that's when I could feel it in my bones, when I could feel it in my body that I was speaking from a very real place. And the piece is the last piece that's in my book, um, White Girls. It was a piece about memory. And I wrote that when I was 30, and that's the first piece I wrote, and I put it at the end of the book. I think we should probably read from that. Sure. This is from an essay I wrote in 1990 called It Will Soon Be Here. The wall surrounding memory misremembered is clean and wide and high, similar in effect to the wall one finds in certain airports in other countries, clean and wide and high like that, banking in or letting go those who want to remember clearly or don't. 
passengers coming or going in the field of memory are a tangle of arms and legs, hands, hearts, hair, and minds that, if you do not stand too close or listen too carefully, speak a shared language remarkable in its oppressive loneliness, its denial, what a horrible memory, and so forth. Regardless of where many of us believe we land in that field encumbered by not too much baggage or entirely too much, we all come from the same place, which is a road rutted by experience, so banal, nearly remarkable, that memory tricks us into remembrance of it again and again, as if experience alone were not enough. What are we to do with such a life, one in which we are not left alone to events, love, shopping, and so forth, but to the holocaust of feeling that memory, misremembered or not, imposes on us? You know, I keep coming back to the same feeling every time you read, which is to follow your work is really not fair. And I think I I shouldn't have to talk for like (laughs) five minutes after each reading. Well, you're very sweet. But we're in conversation. You're being very generous. Thank you. As opposed to what? Oh, boring, you know. Laborious, we not interested. No, we, you're we great. Can't, we you're, can't. We can't do that. You're fantastic at this. Well, on the subject of conversation, mm. you seem to often be discussing the power of and the elusiveness of memory. You wrote in a commencement speech for Columbia, "The artist's memory is a dangerous, necessary thing. Mm-hmm. Never disavow what you see and remember. It's your brilliant stock and trade. Mm. Remembering and making something out of it." The older you get, mm. the more you write. What is that interplay of memory like? It becomes more and more um, handy in terms of telling stories, and and your capability becomes stronger because your muscle becomes stronger in terms of control. And so, I was talking about in that piece a kind of barrage of memory, but you become more selective in terms of what is useful to you as an artist. I think and. When I wrote that, I was sort of, I remember it was like the end of a love affair, and it was, I was very sad, and I was also trying really hard to understand what kind of writing I wanted to do, or what kind of writing I was capable of, really. So that piece grew out of that idea of capability, of loving this thing so much, writing. I wanted to do the best I could by it, you know, that it was a an honor to be published. It was an honor to have an audience of any kind. It was and remains a deep mystery to me that I'm involved in and that I love, you know? What do you mean by mystery? Because I don't think you wake up thinking, oh, I I know how to write. I think you wake up saying, I want to write and I, I hope I can write. When you wake up to write, you have a ritual, or you did, and it was to Wendy watch Williams. Wendy Williams. I love her, but she's not there anymore. So how do you write? I just get up and do it. I, I don't... Do like you miss this, Wendy? I, I miss her deeply, but uh, one of the things that I do is I still sort of clean, like I still sweep the floor and make the bed, and all that stuff gets you prepared to sit down to it. But you're still kind of missing the special ingredient. Yes, I know, but it will come in another form at some point. <laughs> You'll yeah. find new inspiration? Yeah, yeah. But hopefully she'll come back. I'll be there to greet her if she comes I, back. I would love for her to come back. Yeah, yeah. This mysterious process of, of writing, as if it's been waiting for you to show mm, up, mm. does it get easier? No, never, never. I wouldn't be interested if it got easier. 
Why is that? Because it's such a gift to wake up and not know what you're doing, but also that you love doing it and that it will be completely different the next day and that you'll feel differently. It's a, it's a gift. You know, there's no physical or ethical pleasure in the difficulty of it, but there is immense spiritual pleasure and release. You said once, I'm a guilty person. Mm-hmm. I just go around the world feeling guilty. But when I'm working on something, I can feel the energy shift in a piece of writing where I'm not in control of it anymore. Yes. And that's the freedom, is that you're going to wake up and go to places that you you couldn't anticipate, you know? When you're not writing, what are you guilty about? Our collective lack of humanity, our lack of care from one another, our our lack of belief in one another as a species, loneliness, people trying to connect and not connecting, violence, anger, isolation, a whole world of feelings to feel guilty about and not being able to make it better somehow. You feel like you need to make it better? Mm-hmm. Or I would want to. I would like to. I think that's more accurate. And you don't think you have? I'm hoping so. I think that I'd live in, when I meet someone like you, and you give me hope, I run with it. Because it's, it's hope. You know, it's a gift. Well, on the subject of hope, mm-hmm. before we leave, mm-hmm. I have a couple things for you. Sure. I quoted that um, commencement speech uh-huh. you gave back in 2014. I'm going to read the end of it now. Okay. You said, I never believe, not for one second, that art is created out of avoiding the world and its various realities. If you avoid that, you avoid life, which is your source material. You dishonor all your ghosts in the sunlight, including the person you were when I began this speech, the Columbia boys I knew and loved long ago, the politically oppressed poet who changed a face, and you, dancing with my former self before we part. And you walk proudly into that sunlit hope, ghost and all. And there's so much in that that I'd love to unpack, but I can't help but shake those last few words, walking proudly into your sunlit hope, ghost and all. Mm. And it dawned on me, one of those ghosts, at least now, must be your mother. She passed away back in 1989. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was thinking also of my best friend who died of AIDS in 1991, and I met him at Columbia. He's a primary person in that text, I think. That was Kevin? Kevin, that's right. I think I'm referring more to him in that instance of the past is the past. You can't return. But how do you not leave something behind as you move forward? I think it's part of who we are, that we take it with us. And that hope you mentioned which we talked about earlier, that was so elusive to you as a child. Yes. That same hope that your mother seemed to be able to maintain. Absolutely. I mean, it would be disrespectful for me not to recognize hope when it's staring me in the face, given what she gave me, you know? It would be just disrespectful. So then, at the tender age of 62. Yes, I feel like I'm just beginning. Are you able to find hope on the page? Yes, every day. Every day, um, because every day that's given to me I may, is the hope that I'll be able to tell the truth on the page. If you can do that... I'll get a boyfriend. Are you single? Yeah. 
You're single? Yeah. Okay. If if you are interested, um, Hilton's email is <laughs> <laughs> his 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 OnlyFans account is. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go there, but now I'm thinking, would Prince be in part of your OnlyFans account? Oh, wouldn't that be the best? <laughs> it would be a dream. I mean, we're making a, an OnlyFans joke, but yeah, is that something that's been on your mind? A partner? Yes, I would like to have that experience again of. Um, Above and beyond, it's someone that you can talk to and trust and laugh with. Really, essential is humor. Mm. And you know that. It's someone that you trust in an intimate way and whom you can laugh with in an intimate way. I miss that, yes. Well, I guess part and parcel with that is this question I have around what we leave behind and legacy, which you previously said were horrified by Mm-hmm. as a queer person, as a person of color, and because of my family. But has that changed for you now? Do you think about legacy differently? Now I would think of it as I have more of a chance to have a legacy than before, for sure. I'm feeling very optimistic these days about my capabilities and still guilty about how we treat each other as humans. You know, like, you have a chance at it seems so... It's not asking for much. No, no. Beautiful. I like how when I am uh, posing a question and you are answering it and dipping and diving back into the past that you close your eyes. Yeah, it's just to hear what you're saying, to, to really be with your question. Well then, on the subject of posterity and those ghosts forcing your hand, whether it's Didion or Kennedy or Kevin or your mother... I thought we'd end with a piece that you want us, the listener, the reader, to hold. Mm-hmm. I think to conclude, I'll be reading from Jean Reese's unfinished autobiography called Smile, Please. Just to be clear, <laughs> you want to end with writing that's not your own. Yes, because it evokes and says much more beautifully something that I um, feel about writing. And um, not not the way that she felt about human beings. I don't necessarily agree here, but um, I do agree with her assessment about what writing means. So this is a mock imaginary trial. At the end of her life. At the end of her life, and she's writing a dialogue um, talking about uh, earning your death. Defense. It is untrue that you are cold and withdrawn. It is not true. Defense. Did you make great efforts to, shall we say, establish contacts with other people? I mean, friendships, love affairs, and so on. Yes, not friendships very much. Did you succeed? Sometimes, for a time. It didn't last? No. Whose fault was that? Mine, I suppose. You suppose? Silence. Better answer. I am tired. I learnt everything too late. Everything was always one jump ahead of me. The phrase is not, I do not know, but I have nothing to say. The trouble is, I have plenty to say, not only that, but I am bound to say it. Bound? I must. Why? 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 I must write. If I stop writing, my life will have been an abject failure. It is that already to other people, but it could be an abject failure to myself. I I will not have earned death. Earned death? 
Sometimes, not often, a phrase will sound in my ear clearly as if spoken aloud by someone else. That was one phrase, you must earn death. A reward? Yes. Any other phrase? Yes. You will be helped. Wow. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about these great people and who really uh, made me to some degree, you know? You really feel that passage. I do. I did. Um, It's just such a, it's just so crystal clear about possibility and, and the artist's hope, you know, that life will allow you to finish your work. To end on your writing, I'll do it for you. You wrote, I can feel the energy shift in a piece of writing when I'm not in control of it anymore. You're controlling the form, but you're not controlling, for want of a better word, your subconsciousness. And those are the moments that you live for, because then the pages just happen. They've just been waiting for you to show up. And uh, I so thank you for showing up today. And thank you for the opportunity. Actually, thank you for showing up both days. (laughs) Hilton Nails. Take care. Be safe. that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. I want to give a special thanks today to Stephen Barclay, Tucker Smith, New Directions Publishing, The Hammer Museum, and of course, Hilton Owls. To learn more about his new book, My Pinup, or his new exhibition around Joan Didion at The Hammer Museum, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our episodes with Margot Jefferson, Kehinde Wiley, Ocean Wong, Marina Amramovich, Antoine Sargent, George Saunders, and Jennifer Egan. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. As always, a big thanks to our team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Photographs today are by Emile Ravello. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. 
video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.